Hello, this is Toby. Just a few words from me before we get going with today's episode. When we started this podcast uh, about a year ago, I figured the main audience would mostly be people who already work at the interface between science and policy or, or who study it. So science advisors, government officials, I guess academics who work in that area and so on. In other words, the same kind of people who actually appear on the podcast. Um, and in general, that is the case. That's a big part of our audience, as far as I can tell. But there's another part of our audience, which, um, with hindsight, foolishly, I didn't really anticipate. Some people who listen to this show are scientists, researchers, who don't work in science advice at all. They work in other areas of academia. But they have an interest in finding out how the work they can do, whatever it might be, might have an impact on future policymaking. So... A lot of these are like early career researchers, graduate students, and so on. So alongside a regular program of conversations about the ins and outs of science for policy, I've had a fair number of requests for some content addressing specifically issues facing early career researchers and how one might make the first move, uh, as it were, from the ivory tower to a place where your work can influence policy. And I'm very happy to oblige. So we have a series now of two such episodes coming up. Today's conversation is with Adriana Bankston from California, who's made a name for herself in helping people make exactly that move, as you will hear. So this is a very practical, very career-focused type conversation. And then our next episode in two weeks' time, um, I hope to be a conversation about what it's like for students to enter the world of science advice scholarship for the first time. So what observations they bring about the field coming from outside. I really think there's a lot of value in these conversations, even for our more experienced listeners, people who know this area very well. I certainly found it really interesting to get this these different perspectives, not that I'm particularly an expert anyway. Um, anyway, today's guest also asked me to mention one thing specifically, which is always the case on this podcast anyway, but bears mentioning now and then. She, like all my guests, uh, speaks from her own personal perspective and does not represent her employer, in this case, the University of California. So there we go. I hope you enjoyed this little pair of episodes. As always, thanks for listening. And uh, please do get in touch via podcasts at sapea.info if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes or I don't know, just want to brighten my day. See you on the other side. Hello, welcome once again to the Science for Policy podcast. My name, as always, is Toby. And today I'm joined by Dr. Adriana Bankston, who, at least for her day job, works for the University of California as a principal legislative analyst at the federal level. She's also chief executive of the Journal of Science Policy and Governance, with an academic background in biology and biochemistry. And as if all that wasn't interesting enough for our purposes, she now also works to help early career researchers make the move into policy fields, and she advocates for the changes in higher education that we need to support that. So, Adriana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Toby. So let's start with your role at the University of California. What's that all about? What do you do there? Yeah, so in a very broad sense, we advocate for priorities of the University of California system with Congress, the administration, and federal agencies. So what this means is a lot of pushing our priorities at Capitol Hill, analyzing legislation that's relevant to higher education and research, 
And um, there's been a lot more discussion now with, um, especially with the pandemic in terms of the research pipeline and how, you know, early career researchers and grad students are affected by the pandemic and their, their future careers in science. So I think that our portfolio has shifted a little bit more from just pure research advocacy to the workforce as well, which, as you mentioned, dovetails well with my own interests as well. Right. And I would guess that a lot of what you work on uh, are common interests shared by other universities. So it's not just standing up for the University of California alone, I would imagine, but also the whole sector. Yeah, there are a lot of general issues in higher education that a lot of institutions advocate for. A lot of times, actually, that does happen in a common advocacy as well, because if there's something like we want to advocate for increased NSF funding, for example, then it's more likely that might go through if you have several universities that sign on. We also have higher education associations that sign on to that. So there's a kind of a common ask from the community for some of these things. And that a lot of times goes through much easier uh, because it is a general ask. Yeah, right. Well, I'm, I'm sure that keeps you busy. Um, and since you also have this kind of side gig in helping young researchers to move from scientific career paths into areas where they can influence policy... Well, I, I presume from the job you now do that this is a move that you yourself made in the past. Yeah, yeah, it's been a move. Um, probably took about maybe three years or so just to really build up a solid portfolio and policy. And part of that was sort of my own exploration of where I wanted to take my career and most of it sort of trying to figure that out, but also build the skills and the portfolio that I needed for a policy job like I have now. Hmm. Well, would you recommend it? Why would a promising researcher want to jump ship and work in policy instead? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. So what I enjoy about it is the ability to look at issues, like especially across institutions. And obviously my, my space is very focused on um, institutional policy, but um, really looking at you know what things look like as far as trends in higher education across the United States, uh, which I think is very interesting, gives you really good view of sort of where you stand, what issues you need to work on. That's very different from coming from an institution when you're doing your PhD or sort of, you know, entrenched in your project and you're very focused on that one thing. This is very high level, broad view of things. So that's one of the differences between, I think, the academic and the policy world that um, this is very much a, sort of a generalist kind of role where you're dabbling into a lot of different topics in your day as opposed to, you know, one, your one project. Um, but I enjoy this, this kind of, this broad, broad and high level view of these issues. And if there are people listening to this conversation who are considering or who might consider working somewhere on the interface between science and policy, can you give a, an idea of the kinds of jobs that exist there? How broad is that range? Yeah. Um, so one thing to note is, uh, you know, policy itself, I think, is a very broad term. There's a lot of different things in this umbrella. There is also the advocacy side. If you're actually pushing your policies forward, as opposed to policy, which is, you know, government, they don't actually advocate, but they collect information. You know, National Academies is another example. These groups that are really valuable and they collect, you know, data and information about these issues, which are then used by other groups to advocate for those issues, right? Because they do advocacy. So, um, Yeah, that's a useful distinction between advocacy, as you say, and more kind of knowledge sharing or knowledge gathering. Um, does that translate also into different settings, different kinds of employers? 
as far as the settings, I think government jobs, I think are pretty, pretty popular and good stable positions. I think it's kind of varies depending on what you want to do day to day and also the issues you want to work on. So I would say, um, you might be a more on the research side versus, you know, if you do lobbying full time, that's sort of the other spectrum. Most jobs I think are in between and you kind of do, do both. Um, but then you could also advocate for something that is, you know, for a small association or a small nonprofit that is focused on a specific area. That's very motivating for some people to go that route. That's another way to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. So then I'm wondering, I know a lot of the audience of this podcast is researchers, scientists. So are you like on a mission to persuade people like them to make the jump? Is it a good thing? Like, Does the world need more scientists to get involved in policy? Or are you more interested just in supporting those people who choose to do it? Um, maybe both. I think it's good um, for a scientist to realize that there's more things out there than just their project and how they can use this knowledge in society, right? So that is very valuable, even if you're just doing it when you're at the bench. And um, as a student, you know, getting involved in things that give you that broader view, because then you go back to the lab and realize, you know, why you're doing that and what is that going to do, you know, long term. On the other side, yeah, there's right now, I think there's a lot of students who are interested in going into policy and the, the system doesn't really have a, you know, doesn't really train you to do that very well. Uh, which is good in a sense because everybody who has transitioned has a different story and it's really interesting to hear. You kind of get to carve your own path and I've enjoyed that aspect. But at the same time, I wish there was something more systematic that would help a student who wants to go into policy to know, you know who to talk to, is there an office they can go to, right? That sort of thing. So there is the need for institutions to also build some of this uh, resources for them to be able to transition. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, one reason I asked, so not to, to over-dramatize this, but is this dangerous? Well, dangerous might be too much, but you do hear from a lot of people about the importance of training the next generation of scientists because we're going to need these kind of experts more and more in the future. And it sounds like you're talking about not just enabling scientists to work more with policymakers, but actually enabling them to jump ship and move into a policy field instead. Doesn't that pull in the other direction somewhat. Yeah. Um, I think this, yeah, this is a, a long, long time debate uh, because we do need to maintain the research pipeline, but also, you know, this idea of we're also training them to be successful in society and do other things. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one thing to say you need extra skills. You want to be a scientist? Cool. Okay, but you also need to be able to communicate about your work, to contribute to society, maybe to advise policy and so on. But it's another thing to say, okay, you're doing a PhD and you're a promising researcher, maybe in 10 years you'll be a PI, but have you considered jacking it all in and going to work in advocacy or whatever? I mean, that one could seem a bit more threatening maybe, or is there space for both? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, it's, a, it's a tricky question, I guess, because I... I'm sort of on both camps in that I spend a lot of time and I, my job, I think is sort of in this space of how do we maintain the pipeline given the pandemic, you know, we advocate for more research, you know, we had a panel with students and postdocs where we're sort of said, okay, tell your story, the things you're not able to do now because of the pandemic and sort of use that to advocate for, you know, research recovery. And so I definitely, agree that we need to maintain this but at the same time if there's people that have other ideas you know we need to 
to build that pipeline to where they can transition out of academia if they want to. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about that pipeline then. If you're a young researcher and this idea of policy work is appealing, um, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that there isn't necessarily a door you can go and knock on. There isn't necessarily someone you can just go and talk to, except people like you, I guess. <laughs> yes, and I do that, happily do that as well. Uh, I've become somewhat of a mentor for students now who, who are looking for this, and I do kind of one-on-one -on -one meetings too. I think, so what I would say is it's very hard the way the academia is set up because it's very geared towards building more faculty and you're sort of building that pipeline. And in terms of, you know, what universities can do, I think part of it is um, working on improving the environment for early career researchers when they're still at the bench. Um, that will, I think, facilitate some of this exploration too. Um, the other way to think about it is, you know, there's a lot of science PhDs who go into policy, which I think is very helpful. But if I were, you know, an undergrad now, I would think, you know, maybe I wouldn't have gone the, the science route, right? So you might be able to, you know, get a master's in policy or something like that, that may be more relevant. So if you, if you know earlier where you want to go, you may not pursue certain things, right? So there's different routes. And what about deciding if it's for you? What kind of skills or personality traits might make someone take this idea seriously? Well, I guess I can say from my day job, there's, there's a lot of writing. You're always summarizing data, you know, a lot of information into a little paragraph, which is the, you know, the main thing that you want to put forth. So learning how to write for non-scientific audiences is really helpful, even if you're just doing blogging or something that gives you a different perspective. It's not so technical. It's it's very fast paced. I'll say that uh, you have to be able to switch between a lot of different priorities and projects in any given day. Sometimes things will happen in you know in DC. You know the president will do something, then we have to write a letter in response. It's kind of exciting, but it could be also stressful for somebody who likes to plan everything and know what they're gonna do when they go in. This is not the job for them <laughs> for <Yeah>. you. <laughs> But I think that's one thing that's exciting about it is that you are really, you know, in real time responding to the issues that are going on. You really have the option to influence legislation and, you know, the research that's going on. And uh, I think that's helpful. Uh, you do have to be kind of on your feet all the time, though, because of that. So even though it's pretty regular as far as hours go, you know, the, the things that you end up doing are sometimes can't predict how you, what your day will be. <laughs> yeah, and I can see how that can be very different from your typical academic role where you're kind of doing your own research and planning it all and carrying it out step by step. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how do people acquire those different skills? What kind of training or experience is available to help them do that? Um, given we just discussed, there is no systematic way to do that. Uh, you kind of have to, you know, do your do your own thing. What has been really helpful in my transition is volunteering with groups that work on issues that I was interested in, because that's really helpful. I think it gives you kind of a a path and something to focus on that you can organize all your activities around and also gives you a reputation that, OK, this person is interested in, you know, advocating for a specific thing. And then people get to know you that this is what you're interested in. You know, they invite you to things and you become sort of the expert in that. So that's the advice I would have is, you know, pick something that you're interested in and kind of build your portfolio around that because that will teach you the skills that you need, but you'll also be focused on a certain direction that you want to take and that will help. 
Um, you know, I mentioned the kind of things I've done. You know, I've done a lot of blogging early on about higher education issues just because I had a lot to say and wanted to get that out. Um, and, and, and this was just like off your own bat because you wanted to do it rather than for an organization. Yes, very, very proactive, just sort of, you know, exploring, uh, looking for opportunities to write, uh, looking for podcasts to be on, you know, different different places even early on as I was still very early and just left academia and already had, you know, things that I thought needed to change and I wanted people to know that. <laughs> then if you can, you know, as a student, I think if you don't want to necessarily fully commit, there's also things you can do that will give you exposure to advocacy, you know, like Capitol Hill days or something like that, where you get a little bit of taste of what it's like, then you go back to a lab and, you know, realize it's not for you and that happens, right? Um, so, can- so okay, what's a Capitol Hill day? I mean, I presume it's, it's going to Capitol Hill and spending the day there. Yeah, so it's basically an organized effort to advocate for a few issues. So a lot of times it'll be organized by, for example, scientific societies. A lot of them have their own hill days every year. They have specific priorities, right? So I was at the Society for Neuroscience. So that was very specific to we advocate for neuroscience funding and training and maybe one other point. And then you have sort of this unified front of people who are going to, you know, offices on the hill um, and making these three points, right, basically. Um, A lot of that is, you know, there is a training component to where if there are students involved, and this has become, I think, a way to involve students in the field because they get selected to go to this hill day. They participate in usually like a one-day training. They get to go there, you know, sometimes, I mean, a lot of times you'll have uh, you know the staff, but sometimes you do you do see you know the senator in there, so that's pretty cool. You know, for a student to be in the room and it really gives you that exposure. But it is also somewhat in a controlled environment, right? To where like here are the points we want you to make. Okay, and given that as you say, there's no kind of established pathway to this. Maybe it's more useful for me to ask, what was your own story? What path did you follow? So, you know, when I realized I didn't want to go into academia, I was sort of getting interested in the training aspect of, you know, how do institutions train students for different careers, went to the office that works with that. I think one of the postdoc offices there and said, you know, can I volunteer? Can you tell me what your job is like? You know, what do you do? Um, thinking at the time I wanted to maybe work in administration and develop programs and resources sort of fill this gap, right? Things that don't exist that need to be developed. And that person became sort of a higher ed mentor, I guess, to where, you know, this is, that was his area. He's been in administration for a long time. He was running this office. And so I learned from him about, you know, how he thinks about training uh, and then where the people are who are doing these things, right? He helped me build my network. Uh, so I sort of went from there to to build out, I guess, this network of people who could help or had the knowledge I wanted to, I needed to to see in order to transition that uh, these people were not PIs, right? So I think that's one thing I would say is, you know, finding somebody who is in that role, who's willing to be a mentor or maybe, you know, partially, maybe they can connect you to someone else and kind of build that pipeline. Um 
and as I mentioned, you know, blogging is always good. And these, these things, like, there's a lot of groups that are always looking for people to write, you know, because it's a win-win, right? Because you want to build your reputation, but they also need people to write so they can keep their blogs going. So that is a good, a good way to start. And I've seen a few institutions that have a little, you know, training here and there for communication or advocacy. I think this is becoming more common, but it's still not very standardized, right? So there'll be, I don't know, maybe five universities that have something like this. And if you're not at that one, that's a problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I think a lot of it honestly now comes from the outside. Um, you know, there's a lot of nonprofits and different organizations that are in this space and advocating for improving academia and they're developing their own, you know, workshops to teach students how to learn to do these things, right? So a lot of it still comes not from the institution, but people have used that to sort of streamline or transition out. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that your journal, Science Policy and Governance, also has this as part of its mission, this kind of support? Yeah. So, I mean, it's been a good stepping stone for a lot of students who want to go into policy because it gives you, I think one thing is having this credential of having a policy publication is very valuable. And, you know, we do, we have started doing more sort of professional development and workshops and writing workshops. So some of these things that I talked about, right, that are, are not being taught in universities, like sort of complementing some of that. And we also have an editorial board, which is early career. So that's another way to gain this experience as far as professional development for trainees. So all these things, you know, we do publish, but we also give them some professional development opportunities as part of it. Okay, thanks. You've also talked and written about um, the higher education system more structurally. So it's not just, okay, I want to get out of academia and into policy, what do I need to do? It's also about what needs to change in academia in kind of the institutional setup so that the transition is easier. And so people supported to to make the jump. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I think just realizing that, you know, this model of training future PIs isn't going to work uh, because that is very narrow. And a lot of young people nowadays have a lot of different ideas what they want to do. You know, I would say developing some sort of curriculum that teaches you how to talk about science to non-scientists. I would love to see you know, communications programs, science communication training, advocacy, all these things, because I do think that, I guess, coupled with some sort of practical experience is, is really helpful for, even if you just do for a semester, you know, learn a little bit about how do I translate my science? Can I get, you know, to experience for a month or two and then go back to a lab, right? So that really helps. And is this, would you, I mean, do you mean like at an undergraduate level? Um, that's a good question. Uh, it's hard to know. I would say yes, the earlier the better. But at the same time, college sometimes you're still, people are still don't know what they want to do and they might change again. So grad school is a good place because you're already maybe a little more advanced. And also the PhD is pretty versatile, I guess. You can use it for different things so if at that point you're developing your science and also your advocacy at the same time that is a good combination because it gives you more options i think at the same time institutions aren't very transparent about where their students go as far as career outcomes 
And again, I, I've sort of done a little bit of this work trying to see what this looks like across the U.S., where people go and if there was more data about, you know, certain institutions, you know, these students are going into policy, other institutions are going into other careers, right, then you might want to develop something that will help that, right, more targeted that way, but you need more data. Mm. And the other obvious question, since we're talking about what needs to happen, is whether there are any examples you know of of good practice, institutions that are doing it well. I would say not too many. I've seen a couple of institutions that, you know, have mentoring programs. This is becoming more common, I think, to, you know, train train the trainer sort of thing. Like, how do you teach faculty to be good mentors? These are starting to, I think, pop up here and there. Some institutions or some departments do consider this as part of the hiring practices. But again, that isn't a common practice, which I think it would be helpful to Say, how do you evaluate the mentoring capacity before you hire the faculty, right? Um, and then on the other side, you know, I think the accountability for this would be funding agencies doing something about, um, you know, is, do they, you know, a lot of them do have mentoring plans in the grants, but they don't necessarily hold people accountable for doing that. Uh, which I think would also improve the system if there is some sort of consequence to not being a good mentor, right? That's a, that's a big conversation in the field. Yeah, but I mean, aren't you always going to have this kind of structural problem though, that the mentors that are available in the academic world are people by definition who have not switched to policy but have in fact stayed in academia and become career researchers, which is all very well, but it's maybe not what you need the most if you want to know more about the other side of the fence. Which I guess is why you talked also about other supporting organizations. Yeah, I think that's important. And it's just, I think, gives you an open mind about what other careers might exist if you just meet people who have made the transition. And so I always advise students to do informational interviews to hear from people who are in jobs that they might want to they might want to pursue one day. But that also becomes your network, right? So, I mean, I've, I've tapped into my network again and again for different things, right? Yeah, 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 I'm sure. Okay, so so here's one thing I find interesting and a little bit kind of puzzling for me personally in this conversation. So my training was mostly in philosophy. And in philosophy, certainly at the university I was at, there were absolutely loads of conversations about what people would do when they finished their degrees. Um, and there was almost no expectation, even at postgraduate level, that we'd all go on to become professional philosophers. I mean, that's kind of a joke. And even when I came to do my PhD, I don't think many of my cohorts... It was, a, it was a tiny cohort, but, you know, we were never going to go on and become PIs. Again, there isn't really such a thing as a PI in philosophy, but you know what I mean. So there were lots of conversations about people going into law, into education, into government roles, policy roles, and so on. Um, and then there were also people like me who kind of blundered backwards into politics and science communication. So when you describe this pipeline, it doesn't quite chime with my experience. Now, do you think that difference is because of my discipline? Like maybe in the experimental sciences, there's more of an expectation of training people from the start to to become the next generation of scientists. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, although I'll say when I was a postdoc, I actually started this uh, seminar to bring speakers to talk to postdocs about different careers. So even at that stage, because a lot of times people don't realize that they don't want to be academics until they get to their postdoc and then there should be another option, right? So 
uh, I think, again, if you build a structure and the options and they at least get to hear about what they could do, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they might pursue that full-time, but it still gives you an idea of, oh, this person works in medical writing or, I don't know, something that is adjacent, but not exactly, but maybe you want to do that one day, right? So I think, you know, touching on one issue here that... Um, the academic pipeline is very fixed, I guess. So sort of once you're the PI, that's kind of your whole life and you run, you know, develop your lab, you run your lab and that's what you do. And I know that because my parents do that. <laughs> um, but once you start, I think, down the policy route or probably even other areas too, it's much more fluid to where you can say, okay, I'm going to work for government for five years and go work for your university. You know, there's a lot more options and it, the expectations isn't that you'll be running your lab forever, right? So this is something to keep in mind is that if, you know, you're an academic thinking about another option that there are a lot of careers out there, but also you're not sort of stuck in that path if that's not what you want to do, right? Yeah, that's interesting. So until now, we've mostly been talking about switching career paths, so leaving science behind and going to work in a science-related part of policy. But a lot of what we talk about other times on this podcast is more of a hybrid thing, where scientists get their hands dirty in the political world, they give policy advice or they sit on committees or they represent the area of research they work in, but that is kind of moonlighting alongside their regular day job of being a career scientist. Uh, or I guess in more enlightened setups, it might not be moonlighting. It can be built into their role, but they still haven't left science behind. And they usually do go on to become PIs and make their mark on the academic world too. Is that area also something you have experience with? Uh, and is any of what we've said so far relevant to people in those kinds of roles? Yeah, I think also from a personal experience as, and I think now there's a lot more, you know, even grad students who are thinking about their career options early, which is nice to see, you know, in their first year, they're already exploring, you know, is this what I want to do? Is there something else? How do I gain experience? These things take time. Like I mentioned, it takes, you know, two, three years to really build that up. Um I think if you do want to stay in academia, there are ways to gain this experience. Like I mentioned, the Capitol Hill days, that's a really good sort of practical experience to see what it's like to be on the Hill. You know, you may have not like that to go back to a lab. It's fine. Um, in the sense of, you know, as I mentioned too, it's, I think it's important to develop these skills of being able to explain your research to a non-scientist. And these things exist, you know, they've seen, more, they've been more sort of, these outreach examples or, you know, there's something like beer with a scientist, you know, you go to a bar and talk to people about science basically. And it's very open-ended. There's people there have no idea what you're doing. And that can give you a good perspective of, again, how people view your research who are from outside. Right. And it gives you, I think it gives you a good perspective on that. Um, so even if you're, you know, staying in the lab, I still encourage people to, to communicate about their science in different ways, not just through their papers, right? Even for students, I mean, now, you know, the environment that we're in now, I think there's a lot of opportunities and, you know, virtual webinars or workshops. I mean, so there's things you can learn from home while you're still in, you know, in training. Those are important. And, and also mentioned, you know, doing informational interviews. So that's always helpful, again, just to learn from other people, you know, grow your network and see what other options are there. Yeah, I was just going to say those skills seem like they're useful for career scientists anyway. Yeah, training, you know, the future faculty pipeline also requires other skills that are not just 
doing your research, right? So we still, it still comes back to this idea of we need to train, you know, postdocs how to, you know, manage budgets, you know, how do you manage a team? You know, it's like a business, right, in a sense. So again, these things need to exist or need to, we need to implement that somewhere before you give somebody a faculty job because there's going to be a lot more things they have to do. Yeah, right. So one thing I've heard discussed a bit recently is the concept of incentives. So the suggestion that the kinds of activities which scientists do so they can contribute to policymaking are not necessarily acknowledged or rewarded in their career progression in a way that encourages them to do it, basically. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I think you just see this culture of, you know, competition or what people people even call it, you know, hyper competition to where, and I don't even know what it takes these days to get a tenure track position. It just seems like it's, it's so hard. Um, but, you know, everybody, you know, this, you know, this competition of, you know, how many papers did you publish? How many, uh, how much money is, is your grant? So the, the focus is very much on sort of like, you know, the products and you're measuring your success by that. Um, I think, uh, and sort of these other things we're talking about incentives for, you know, teaching people science communication, like that's fine, but it's not going to get you another grant, right? So the, the whole structure needs to change if you want to implement some of this, that, then you need to have, you know, mentoring, for example, be part of, you know, the training, the grants, like I mentioned, the, then reward people who do do a good job or not, right? And change the incentives from just being, you know, the number of papers published to actually how did you train your people, right? So that gets to the whole kind of question of success. So what is a successful scientist or, you know, you're as a PI, how do you know if your people succeed, right? So it is to an extent is the product, but you want to mentor your people so they can go and, you know, do good things in society, you know, become leaders, you're training leaders, right? Essentially, not just the person that can publish another paper, right? So uh, that's different. So more about the people in the pipeline than the research, I would say, or that's, you know, that's part of why I'm interested in this question, because I think there's a lot there and it's important to focus on that too. Yeah, clearly. Okay, we have to talk before we finish about the pandemic, which is my heart sinks. Actually, you mentioned earlier on that in some ways, COVID has made the kind of experience we've been discussing a bit easier because it's so much easier now to jump into an online event in an area outside your own academic field and so get a taste for these things. Um, as well as that, there's certainly been an increase in public attention on academics interacting with policymakers. Do you think there's also an increase in demand or in student interest corresponding to that? Yeah, that's hard to know. I think there's, and I don't know if that's because of the pandemic or not. I, I have seen a lot more trainees who are interested in policy. I would say that was also true before the pandemic. But I've also heard people say that this has made them realize why they have to go into policy because it gives you an you know, opportunity to have a broader impact. And obviously, you know, if I were a grad student now, we think about, yeah, what else can I do, right? Which is good and bad, I suppose, because we are losing people from, from the pipeline to other things. But I think it's it's given people time to reflect and think, you know, do I really want to be an academic? What other things can I do? Let me watch a webinar, right? So it's it's shifted people's perceptions, I think, just because they have time to think about other things, right? Because I think if you're 
you know, in the lab 24-7, you're doing that, it's sometimes it's hard to, you know, you forget that you have to develop your other areas in professional development. But now because things are slower and they can only do so much, it's kind of foster this, you know, slowing down, thinking about, okay, this is, do I still want to go, you know, this direction? Can I, you know, take an online class, develop, you know, so it's, I think it's helping people develop other things. Mm -hmm. And more generally, do you think it's happening overall? Are you optimistic? Are things moving in the right direction? Uh, A little bit. I think the issue is, like I said, that it's not, um, there is no sort of system to make sure that people are learning these things, like, you know, how to be a good mentor, being able to take, you know, science communication training, right? So I think these are basic things, regardless of what you're doing in the future. Uh, but there's still just still very few universities that offer those options, right? So I think there is a shift from maybe five years ago, but it's very slow. <laughs> so last question, would you personally consider making a switch back? Would you ever go back to a pure research career path? No, no, no definitely no? not. Why, why not? Um, well, yeah, I, I think, you know, it goes back to the whole reason why I left, I guess. Um, so I like the intellectual challenge of it, but I never felt like it was giving me any sort of in- impact in society. Uh, it felt like very, you know, I had a very clear end. So I'm working to publish so I can graduate because we need, you know, this publication because it was required to graduate. Uh, it's a very, very dead end sort of in a way uh, because it's very hard to see how that will help another person right down the, down the line. And I think policy, I think, has given me this sort of broad view of things. I'm trying to influence it now from the legislative side, so very high level, you know, something like how much funding do we allocate to the NSF to create programs to train students, right? So that's sort of my path and I'm can do it sort of from a high level. Um, again, the the institutional um, sort of impact is is one way, and obviously a lot of people like that strategy of um, being able to develop programs where you're having the direct impact and you see sort of the impact on the students. But at the same time, I don't know. I enjoy this sort of maybe far removed high level view of and more impact. Uh, and academia is pretty much the opposite of that, right? <laughs> Your lab work. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, so I hear. Well, uh, and then I hope you continue to find what you do rewarding um, and to help others to have the same experience. Dr. Adriana Bankston, thanks very much for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on here. The Science for Policy podcast is produced by Sapea. We're a consortium of Europe's academies and learning societies, and we're part of the European Commission's scientific advice mechanism. We provide evidence and expertise to inform the work of the group of chief scientific advisors. Sapea is funded by the EU's Horizon 2020 programme for research and innovation, And you can find lots more information about us and our work at sapea.info. Finally, the rather lovely cello music that's playing right now is performed by Elisaveta Sushchenko. So I shall shut up and let you enjoy the last few bars. Bye for now.